1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode number 42 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. To be effective with your content marketing and thought leadership marketing efforts, you've got to go where your audience is. For my guest in this episode, Adam Wash, a partner at AmLaw 200 firm Greenspoon Mortar, that place is Twitter. Adam's a franchise attorney at the firm. He's got about 4,200 followers on Twitter as of the time this is being recorded. He's on Twitter because he knows Twitter is where many small and medium-sized business owners are. That's where many business brokers are. That's where many franchisees and franchisors are. He knows that in order to build his practice, in order to build his authority in his book of business, he's got to be where his peeps are. Now, in fairness to Adam, he's not yet quite on the Eric Pasifici level when it comes to Twitter. You might remember Eric from our October 15th, 2022 episode. Eric is the former Kirkland associate who went on Twitter at first anonymously, but now has, as of this recording, amassed over 53,000 Twitter followers. But Adam is doing his own thing. He's building his practice. He's building his prominence on Twitter. There aren't many attorneys doing this who are currently working at large corporate law firms listed in the AMLAW 200 and NLJ 500 rankings. That's why I asked Adam to join me for this conversation. I hope you enjoy our chat. Adam Wash, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am Adam Wash. I am a partner and co-chair of the Franchise Law Practice Group at Green Spoon Martyr, a national and law 200 firm. So Adam, thanks for taking time to chat with me. I want to talk to you about your emerging Twitter presence and your emerging authority building efforts on Twitter. A lot of times attorneys, especially business to business attorneys, big law attorneys, Look at Twitter like it's the wild, wild west compared to the buttoned up LinkedIn or the more professional third party legal publications like Law360 or Bloomberg Law, et cetera. So I want to dig into your path to Twitter and what you're doing there. But before we get there, can you talk a little bit about your background, your legal background from law school to where you're at currently as a partner at Greenspoon Mortar? And importantly, how you got to franchise law? Because it doesn't look like you were always practicing franchise law from the days that you graduated law school. Uh, that is correct. And, and I'll go back a little bit further. Um, I went to University of Florida undergrad. Um, I was big sports fan, um, played when I was younger, obviously, uh, as most uh, kids do growing up. Uh, but uh, I, I really had this knack for um, and hankering to join the, the, the professional sports uh, world. So um, I, I started interning um, in professional professional baseball and, and minor league baseball, uh, during undergrad, I, I spent a summer in Brooklyn, uh, and then, um, for the Brooklyn Cyclones, which was a Mets affiliate, 
Uh, and then I spent my last summer after undergrad uh, in Savannah, which was a single A affiliate of the Montreal Expo. It was not to date myself, uh, but uh, it was the Savannah Sand Nats. And, and in those roles, um, what was interesting about baseball is you're sort of uh, thrown into the fire. Um, you're, you're learning um, work ethic, uh, different uh, business tasks like sales, which is a huge part of my uh, a career even to this day. Um, and, and so that, that background of starting in baseball really, um, kind of has guided my path, uh, as I, I went through the ranks, different law firms and starting my own law firm. Uh, but after undergrad, I, I started working in the triple a baseball, uh, in, uh, in the Meyer leagues, uh, in new Orleans for a couple seasons, uh, and then ended in Colorado with the Colorado spring sky Sox, uh, before deciding, Hey, you know, um, going to different towns and, uh, flying to, you know, having a, to, to cross the country to kind of rise the ranks in, in baseball wasn't really for me. Um, you know, let's see what, uh, what law school has to offer. So, uh, my girlfriend and, and, uh, now wife, uh, we decided to move back home. Uh, I, I went to, uh, or applied to schools locally and, uh, sort of a newer school was, was popping up, which was, a pretty good value proposition for me called the Florida National University uh, and uh, otherwise known as FIU College of Law. Uh, it was early on uh, as a law school back then, but uh, really they've done a fantastic job of just kind of uh, keeping pace with, with really quality law schools over the years um, and uh, ended up there uh, and started like the Sports Entertainment Law Society. I really thought I was going to be this hotshot sports executive you know, coming out of law school and, and just, you know, going right into the, into MLB, you know, after having my, you know, minor league career and, uh, realized that I, in law school, that I, I really just enjoyed the focus of law. Uh, I worked for a couple of, uh, small firms during law school and, 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 and enjoyed just being a lawyer and the allure of sports really kind of went by the wayside. Um, at that time, it was 2009 uh, when I was graduating, not the best legal market. If you remember back then, uh, a little bit of a financial downturn. And, um, you know, I just so happened to be sort of in, in the legal community through my uh, clerkships and found a job uh, and, and at a, a good Florida firm called Wickersmith um, and uh, had that job, you know, a few months before I graduated and was was relative to my classmates at the time who were, you know, not necessarily employed. Um, and, and frankly, no matter which law school you went to, I think finding a position at that time was, was very difficult. Uh, you're kind of taking, uh, whatever you could get at that point. And it's a lot different than the legal market today. I'll tell you that. And I think you would agree with me on that one. Um, and so I, I went to, uh, after graduation, I started at Wickersmith and, you know, took the bar in, in Florida and uh, passed the bar. And uh, Wicker gave me an interesting um, opportunity to work in uh, aviation of all fields. They had a big aviation practice representing um, manufacturers, uh, aircraft manufacturers, parts manufacturers. Um, and, and what I liked about that practice was it was very... Um, regulated, highly regulated. And so you really had to be aware of both the federal regulations, the state regulations, 
or in place uh, when dealing with uh, aviation litigation or an aviation dispute or, or some catastrophic incident that occurred that, that required our, our legal services. Um, and, and so uh, I was practicing in, in, in that realm. I was also working with our commercial partners handling trademark disputes and uh, Lanham Act type matters. Um, and I did that for five years and, and enjoyed it. Um, I was certainly on partner, partner track there. Um, uh, some of my friends are still there that are partners and have risen the ranks, uh, you know, including those that started when I started. Um, but I, I saw, you know, the, the path forward a couple of years and I said, you know, is this, you know, the, the, am I going to stick this out and do this full time or am I going to, you know, what, what are my other options? So, um, my, my dad, uh, has been a, uh, transactional attorney his whole career uh in law uh for the better part of three to four decades um he uh had worked uh in-house for a couple companies and at the, at that exact time had just opened up his own you know put on a shingle um had a few clients um in the franchise space he was a had been in franchising since i think the early 90s and i was interested intrigued by what he was doing and he was kind of giving me some stuff to look at to kind of my beak, so to speak. (laughs) And, um, uh, so that's where I got my first taste of franchise law was, uh, you know, just kind of watching my dad's interactions with, with his uh, clients. He was representing tropical smoothie at that time, which was a budding franchise company and a few other uh, established brands in South Florida. And I decided, you know, listen, I've got, I've got, two options here. One, I could continue at Wicker or I could, you know, see, Hey, maybe me and my dad can make a run at this thing. Um, and we just decided, uh, that, uh, kind of combine our forces, combine our skill sets and, and start a firm called Wash Law. Um, and so I said to buy to my partners after five years, uh, at Wicker Smith and, and, uh, decided to take the leap and, and, start something up with, uh, with my dad. Um, you know, it's an interesting, uh, dynamic going from, you know, the, the firm life where you have everything sort of at your fingertips and the office space, the, you know, the assistance, the paralegals to an office that, uh, you know, a, a single rented office inside another firm with a logo pretty much. Right. Um, and it was scary. Uh, I'm not going to lie. You know, I was, keeping busy, really educating myself on franchise law, getting, you know, starting to do a little blogging um, and, and really immersing myself into uh, another highly regulated space, a franchise. Um, and uh, had to learn it quick because it was really, uh, you know, sink or swim at that point. I had a, a wife, you know, no kids yet at the time. We were uh, trying to start a, a family. And, um, it was, there was, if you didn't have clients, you didn't make money as, as simple as that right away. So, um, I, uh, uh, caught on quick. Um, I, I used my sales background to, you know, attract startup emerging brands. I know we're going to get into that, uh, uh, you know, what my practice is today and how it got there, but um, early on, it was really take on any sort of 
uh, any sort of business related commercial matter, but also with an emphasis on uh, franchise. And what we did was we marketed to specifically and only as a franchise law firm um, to attract, you know, local uh, franchise companies and also, um, uh, you know, started representing national brands as well. Um, so uh, from there, we added a partner in April, uh, Reigns, uh, became Wash Reigns. Um, and, and, and really to our franchise roots, um, and, and started to build a, a very high volume practice for uh, franchise work. Um, we presented both franchisors and franchisees. We attended all the primary, you know, main, uh, franchise conferences, uh, really injected ourselves into the conversation of um, franchise firms that entrepreneurs and franchisors and franchisees would hire that are based in the South Florida market um, or anywhere that was looking for possibly a Florida-related um, franchise opportunity. And uh, we did that for eight, nine years. And uh, we got to a point where our volume was so high and the hiring of um, a, a good franchise attorneys and attorneys was becoming very difficult to um, be able to keep up with our deal flow and our volume. And uh, Greenspoon uh, recruited us back in uh, March. Greenspoon is a well-known uh, Florida-based firm that is actively growing in uh, a number of metro markets, including New York, LA, Denver, uh, Illinois, uh, Chicago. And uh, we knew some of the people there. I, I went to elementary school with a couple of my partners that are in the Boca office. Um, so I felt familiar with the, with the, with the firm and, uh, they, they gave us this nice little landing spot of a national firm platform, uh, and, and gave me the autonomy to sort of grow the franchise practice in a way that I envisioned. And, uh, here we are and, and, you know, very happy. Uh, they and reports that you know my my first ten months or eleven months of the firm has been you know crazy successful and a lot of that has to do with on the firm but I think what's also happening at the same time is my online profile and my activity has sort of, everything's sort of coming together right now and it's it's a really exciting time to be in franchising and to work with so many uh, amazing people, both looking to get into franchising and who've been in the business for a long time, uh, needing legal services that I can assist. I've got a number of questions, one of which I'm going to go back to your baseball background. Were you at the team that became the Savannah Bananas? Is the, was, were you at the predecessor franchise? 100%. Um, and uh, my kids are now big Bananas fans. Um, yes, the Sand Nats were a team at Grayson Stadium, which uh, it's called Historic Grayson Stadium, which was more or less a ballpark that was very old and run down, and <laughs> uh, but charming, I'll say. Um, and uh, that is where the Savannah Bananas now play. Um, I wish that the leadership group of the Savannah Sand Nats had the same kind of vision as Jesse 
the, the guy wearing the yellow tuxedo has, but uh, I think I'd have a different, completely different career trajectory. That said, um, you know, it's really exciting what they're doing. And, and yes, I can, I can say that uh, the Savannah Sand Nats were the predecessor to the Savannah Bananas. Yeah. Most of us like to be on the after photo of a before and after. Unfortunately, you found yourself on the before oh. side of that photo. And for anybody who's listening, who isn't familiar with the Savannah Bananas, they're a minor league baseball team that, as Adam was saying, had fell on hard times in terms of attendance, the quality of the game, the quality of the players, the quality of the team just wasn't going well. And then this entrepreneur came in and basically completely went against the playbook of sports teams and franchises. They had many, I think they had innings within the game where they would take, make their own rules. They have the umpire singing with the players. They have, I think, food included in the, in the ticket price. Just it's Savannah Bananas. You can look it up online, but it is like the ultimate contrarian view. And it's a huge, it was a huge gamble. I think he took out a line on his home. Like he put everything, him and his wife put everything into this franchise with really no, no one had done this before. And yet here they are, right? Like a massively popular sold out for weeks, if not what months ahead of time. It's just a, it's a, a huge deal now in the yeah. baseball world. And you see him now doing thought leadership type things, speaking about customer service, client experience, because what he did was transform a, a franchise, no offense, Adam, but a, transformed a morbid franchise into a leading gleaming example of what you can do when you focus on fan fans first, clients first, customers first. As a fellow 2009 law school graduate, I feel you with the difficulties of the Great Recession. And I remember sitting at a summer associate Philadelphia class-wide or, or law firm-wide summer associate program in the summer of 2008 when I was a summer associate at Deckert where I began my legal career. And there were tables of summer associates at this event because it was some kind of Supreme Court recap event. So all the summer associates from the, most of the big law firms in the city were there. And there was one table in particular that is like blazing to my brain because that was the table that Wolf Block had. And Wolf Block was a well-known mid-Atlantic regional firm based in Philadelphia that was probably 100, 150 attorneys. They folded during the Great Recession. I want to say maybe late 08, early 09. And all I did was think of that table of summer associates who, in the summer of 08, thought that their legal career was going to get off to a great start. This is a regional big law firm. All their student loans, they'll be taken care of. They'll be off to a great start. And then because of things way outside of their control, while they're taking finals in 3L fall or whatever they were doing, they learned this news. And just you realize, to your point, Adam, how different that market was for attorneys back in, two, in, in 2009, 2008 versus the 2020, 2021, where they were just firms were throwing, almost literally throwing bonuses at uh, associates to, to stay. I want to touch on a little bit before we get into your Twitter presence and what you're doing online, which you hinted at. I'm curious, when you were at Wash Reigns, how much of the business origination was your doing? Because you mentioned how you had to start at a relatively early point in your legal career getting business, marketing yourself, going out there and making yourself known. But how much of those efforts, how many of those efforts actually came to fruition when you were at Wash Reigns compared to letting those seeds grow and where they're starting to sprout now as a partner at Greenspoon Mortar? Yeah. So, I mean, early on, it's a lot different than where we landed eight years down the road, obviously. Um, early on, I, I knew that, you know, my... Um, 
my skill set was, you know, I was a trained litigator um, and, you know, I, I had the skills to be able to sell myself for, um, you know, litigation type work disputes, handling those types of matters. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm a good writer. I was on the law review and, 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 you know, I, I, but I, I, the firm I had landed at was, was primarily litigation. So uh, from a sales perspective, you know, I, I was able to, you know, get referrals and, and, and from, from friends and, and, and local colleagues on, on disputes and, you know, from basically Miami up to, you know, Martin County and on the West coast of Florida as well. Uh, that, that wasn't the issue. The, the sales piece has never been the issue for me. Um, the getting the franchise clients part was sort of in a, a combined effort, uh, between myself and, 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 and my dad, um, I basically became like his salesperson, right? I was, I was selling him and, 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 and his experience, um, as much as selling myself early on, you know? And, um, so, you know, from a generation standpoint, I mean, we were able to, um, uh, probably split the originations, I guess, you know, early on. And, and, and obviously over time, you know, I, I became the managing partner of the firm. And, um, as, as I got my sea legs in the franchise industry and started to connect with younger franchise professionals, um, it became a lot easier. I, I, um, for example, um, you know, one of my good friends in the uh, franchise industry is, uh, Evan Goldman, who, um, uh, I've known for a long time. We met on the opposite sides of a franchise dispute. And um, now he's my partner and co-chair of the, the practice here at GM uh, uh, of the franchise practice. Um, I, I was able to kind of insert myself into a, a group of, of young um, franchise attorneys around the country. Um, and we'd hang out at the, the yearly events and, and, and go to dinner, grab drinks. Um, and so the, the sales part of the franchise, uh, you know, selling myself as a franchise attorney became a lot easier and, and, and clients came, you know, fast. Uh, one thing about franchising, and, and this could be said about uh, a lot of what I'll call niche practices, right? Um, if you really narrow in on that niche and I really narrowed in on that franchise, uh, uh, practice area, blogging. Um, you know, getting myself onto lists, uh, super lawyers as a franchise, you know, distribution category, um, uh, getting illegal eagles from like the franchise times, getting interviewed by multiple publications, trade, trade publications in the franchise space and just getting myself out there. Um, it, it, it really, um, helps you as a small firm in generating business and generating revenue. And I knew that early on, and that was my singular focus was educating myself on the laws and making sure that I could back up what I'm selling and understanding, you know, the practice, uh, both, you know, in disputes and also the transactional side. Um, and, um, and, and promoting and, 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 and getting Wash Rains, the name Wash Rains, synonymous with franchise. And, and that effort really paid off for me. Um, over time, certainly, you know, my, 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 my dad, you know, um, was, he's a, he's a workaholic, I'll say, and I'm sure he's going <laughs> to listen to this. So I need to be, uh, 
uh, PC about that. He, he, he loves working. And, um, you know, frankly, he's, he's still of counsel to our firm and our practice. And, you know, we talk about work all the time. Um, um, but I think he would agree with me that over time, you know, the, the generation of work, you know, really became my area. Um, he certainly had his you know, group of clients and still does. Uh, but, um, you know, the, 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 the size of our practice was primarily, um, obtained through, um, the various marketing, marketing efforts that I was leading and certainly, um, you know, generating, um, as, as, as joint clients, cause you know, we, we certainly would share efforts on the execution side. So you've got what seems to be a lineup of effective tactics because you're keeping yourself fed. You've got other colleagues coming in, you're keeping them fed and you are deemed to be worthy of being absorbed or brought in by Green Spoon Martyr. So you're doing things right, but why Twitter? As you are humming along, you're doing what I would consider to be the traditional playbook, which by the way, many attorneys don't follow. So it's there, it's out there in the public. They know they can follow it, but many have that head down mentality where when they're incentivized by the billable hour, they just bill, bill, bill because they know they can get their bonuses that way. I'm very familiar with that mindset. I had that mindset for six and a half years as a litigation associate. That's what I did. I was rewarded for my hours. So what the hell? I'm going to bill, bill, and bill till I get my bonus and go above and beyond that. But you're doing these things. When does Twitter start to come onto your radar as another type of tool that you could use, whether it's just to do research, whether it's to keep your ear to the ground of what franchisees or franchisors are saying, and as an overall kind of marketing and business development tool? Yeah, and, and I, I appreciate the, the, the billable hour um, method of getting ahead and, and getting to that next level. And frankly, that for the first five years of my practice at uh, the first firm, I, I mean, that was, you're heavily incentivized to bill as many hours as possible. So um, I, I saw that life and I was part of that life. And, and, and frankly, um, that's when Twitter <laughs> sort of entered the lexicon during that life. Um, I, I started out with my Twitter feed as an anonymous, uh, Twitter feed, um, speaking mostly to like aviation, commercial type, uh, commercial political law type, um, type focus, but it was a lot of aviation stuff. I was, I was really into that, into that area at the time. And, uh, my, my. My handle, I think, was like aviation at aviation litigator, you know, and I was, I didn't have my picture up. I was, you know, sort of, uh, behind the scenes commenting on, you know, uh, aviation related disasters or, you know, catastrophic incidents that were made, made national news that I really could insert some, you know, uh, legal opinions on and, got probably my first, you know, 500 followers through, through that, um, that was sort of short lived, uh, because I had, uh, you know, ended up jumping ship and focusing my efforts on, uh, franchising, um, and, and became myself and, and you know, it, it never really was a huge, um, business driver, uh, for a long time, but I would enjoy, um, promoting, you know, the, the, my clients, I would enjoy offering some, some updates on the law, uh, those sorts of things. Um, 
but I never really found the kind of community that, that I'm in now, um, that, um, you know, I, I just call like hashtag like SMB twit, um, you know, uh, where, uh, I'm able to now be this like sort of authority on, on, on franchise law and, and be a, a, a resource for people that are both interested in franchising and already and are already in the industry uh, doing some cool things. For those of you who aren't familiar, SMB Twit would be short for small, medium-sized business Twitter, just like there's appellate Twitter, there's legal Twitter, there's a whole range of Twitter communities, informal, organized around certain hashtags and certain personalities. SMB Twitter is certainly one of them. How did you know that your audience was in Twitter? Because so much of effective marketing and business development for lawyers is knowing where your people reside. If you are chasing general counsel at fintech companies or insurance companies or hotel and other leisure tourism companies, they might be on LinkedIn. They might be somewhere else. So how did you know that Twitter was the place that you should not just start listening to and putting your ear to the ground at, but also become more actively involved in? The trial and error, I'd say, you know, I, I admittedly tried to, you know, start like a hashtag franchise Twitter uh, with some of my colleagues in the uh, franchise world. Um, and what I found was that most lawyers at firms or even at their own firms felt they had this like governor, right? This, this sort of inability to be themselves online. And so, you know, you see a lot of lawyers out there and, and many in the franchise space who have a Twitter handle, but it's basically just a bunch of retweets or a bunch of, you know, just sort of, you know, cut and paste sort of updates in the laws, very vanilla, um, uh, type hosting. And, and, and what I've learned over the years, and it's, it's very difficult in our profession. What I've learned over the years is, being your true, genuine self is probably your best way to market and also to develop a book of business and to develop a develop some longevity in the in the legal marketplace. Um, and so, what I found with Twitter was it wasn't like me just promoting all the successes and all the things that my firm was doing um, that I typically would see on LinkedIn. It was, hey, I'm watching something and I just want to put out my thoughts about it. Or, hey, I'm, you know, interested in sharing something with my kid about my kids or something interesting that will maybe other like-minded people have also experienced. I can just put that out there. Um, so interspersed with a franchise-specific um, successes and, uh, responses to questions that people might have, uh, on, on Twitter, which you can do instantaneously through the platform. Um, you're really able to share with your, your followers, like who you are, like your personality. And I, I couldn't, I've been on other platforms and, and, and including LinkedIn and, and I really didn't feel the same sort of instantaneous connection with the people that were in my little community. Um, which is obviously now rapidly expanding, which is fantastic. Um, but uh, 
And it's really just being myself. And that's really what I enjoyed about Twitter, uh, what I still enjoy about Twitter and um, has, has worked for me so far. How did you get a sense of when to alternate between the attorney providing interesting information, of course, not legal advice, but the attorney providing information, analysis, guidance, insights versus Adam, the human being, the spouse, the father, the human, the sports fan, what have you. Because I think a lot of people struggle with that. A lot of attorneys struggle with that because it is easy to stay buttoned up because that's like the default, right? Arguably pre-COVID, before we started zooming into each other's living rooms, kitchens, whatever, it was much more guarded. There was work Wayne and work Adam, and there was leisure Wayne, leisure. And that's changed a lot. And I'm curious, on a platform like Twitter, where you are most likely engaging on your phone, right? So you're, you could be in the moment, you can snap a photo of a food that you're eating, of your kids doing something, of something you see in the background. How do you go back and forth? Because you obviously don't want to be so personal where people don't take you seriously. But if you're so buttoned up, it's hard for them to actually build rapport with you because they're just seeing, to your point, another attorney stating that they were humbled to be honored by super lawyers or whatever, and then include the link to the press release. So how do you balance professional and leisure and personal? All right. Um, uh, it's, it, I think it's, it's understanding the boundaries and the lines, obviously, between, um, you know, as, as elementary as like giving legal advice versus giving someone just a curbside opinion, you know, or um, saying um, something that might be confidential, like to a deal or to, you know, something that you're aware of because you're in the industry and, 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 and knowing the lines. And, and I think it takes some time to sort of figure out where, where you should land on that. Um, but I've found that, you know, should being able to show off my personality and, 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 and be me and, um, combined with, you know, the ability to present yourself as an authority in whatever field you're in. And in my mind is, you know, just happens to be franchise law, um, does give you the, the sort of confidence to be able to share publicly uh, general points that, you know, might be interesting to whatever the, the topic is. So if, if for example, I'm, I'm posting something about, um, you know, changes in, in, uh, FTC franchise rule guidelines for 2023. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, not only putting out the, the information of, Hey, this is going to impact how franchisors need to, uh, draft their legal documents and, and interact with franchisees, but I'm also giving people sort of a, a ability to respond, to communicate with me via DM. Um, uh, franchisors that are, you know, impacted, you know, might see it and, 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 and ask me some more personal questions about it. And I, I'm always responsive. I, I, I actively am on my DMs on Twitter and responding. 
And, and when it gets to that line of, Hey, this is like, I need to be, uh, your actual formal counsel here in order to proceed with giving you legal advice. Um, you know, that's where it goes to email <laughs> and it goes to conflicts checks. It goes to, you know, um, uh, engagement letters. So, um, I think over the years I've, I've done a nice job of, of sort of putting out the generic information, um, you know, inter interacting on certain topics with, you know, giving a franchise spin on it. Uh, but then when it gets to actual legal advice or someone asking specific questions about their particular situation, um, saying, you know, listen, I, I, I can give you my general guidance, but I, I do feel like, you know, a, a more formal relationship will be required to proceed. So, um, it's not, not, not always easy, certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I, I know the lines I've, I've done the research and, and know that, you know, what I'm putting out there publicly is, is public information. And, and when it gets to a point where I know I need to, you know, actively represent someone or, or give them actual legal advice, uh, that's the route I go. Can you talk a little bit about the business model of a franchise law practice, or maybe the dynamics is a better word of a franchise law practice vis-a-vis -vis the content that you put out there? Because I'm curious as a franchise lawyer, are you only representing franchisees versus franchisors, which means that you can put your flag in the ground and take a pro-franchisee or anti-franchisor approach because you'll never represent the other side? Are franchise legal matters, are they litigation? Are they more like corporate ongoing counsel? Because I would think the kind of work you do for clients and who these clients are is going to dictate the kind of information you put out there. For example, you can have plaintiff's attorneys on Twitter who will just destroy insurance companies and corporations because they're never, ever in the foreseeable future going to represent those companies. But if you're playing both sides as a franchise lawyer, franchisee, franchisor, you're going to have to be more circumspect, I would think, about the shots you take, if any, because you don't want to upset a would-be client or referral source down the road because you thought you had a slick one or two liner that was going to get a bunch of likes and make a good impression on people. Yes, I'll take that in two parts. The the first part being um, the main areas that I feel are or that lead to a successful franchise practice, and then I'll I'll take on the uh, pro franchisee, pro franchisor, in the same context as you've described of being a plaintiff's plaintiff you know, personal injury attorney, a trial lawyer versus the defense counsel, which in reality is, is similar in my industry. So it, it, there is a, um, that dynamic in play, but, uh, first, you know, I really feel like there's five pillars of a, uh, successful franchise practice and, and which is, you know, this is certainly my opinion and, um, uh, but it's also based on what I've seen, uh, with some of my colleagues who have done a very nice job in the, in the boutique, um, uh, uh, space and also, uh, developing, you know, uh, franchise practice at a bigger firm. But, uh, the first is, uh, you know, franchise or representation. That's kind of the, the, the really, uh, exciting, um, uh, pillar of, of, of being a franchise attorney. Uh, there are various categories there, uh, startup emerging and established brands. Um, but representing franchisors, um, you know, really provides that 
recurring revenue stream, you know, with quarterly and yearly FTD updates, the franchise closings, the FTD uh, updates uh, happen, you know, maybe really anytime a material change happens uh, to a franchisor. Uh, you also get to do the trademark work um, and then dispute resolution, of course, which leads to possible litigation, arbitration uh, with franchisees, um, as well as the the administrative regulatory side, which would be the state registrations, um, which there are uh, states that require uh, registration, uh, both initial and then yearly renewals. And so once you get a franchisor in your in your in your door, you know, you're really um there's constant work, you know, depending on how active the franchise is, how fast they're growing. Um, you know, you, you really can can make a, a good go at it just representing um, um, franchisors. Uh, early on, you know, we represent a, a few brands. You know, we were representing Tropical Smoothie and, and a brand called Miami Subs, which was giving us consistent work. But I've always loved working with, uh, with entrepreneurs. Um, and so I was really pitching my services to the businesses that were looking to expand through franchising. Um, and frankly, I was undercutting what I knew to be the market to get that initial work in the door, knowing that because my margins were so low and had very, very little expenses at the time, uh, I, once I got that client in the door and was able to draft the, uh, you know, the franchise disclosure document for them, and, and get them launched, that constant source of work would, would, would be there. So that was really my early on, uh, marketing to franchisors and, and how I basically went from, you know, five to 10 franchisor clients to 20 to 50. And now I represent over a hundred franchise brands of all sizes. And our team at, uh, GM represents over 200 brands, you know, combined. So. You know, we, we really, um, you know, our, our, our bread and butter is the, the franchise or practice and, and, and certainly, um, catering to the growing, the growing brands. Um, the, the, the second is, you know, part of my practice that is, is becoming, um, a real boon, I'll say on Twitter is a franchisee investor and developer representation. And, and that, that, um, is, is where we're, we're finding a lot of, uh, young entrepreneurs that are, uh, looking to purchase franchise, franchises, development areas, development territories, uh, multi-units, um, and, and, and getting with either a solo investor or putting together a, a sort of, you know, small private equity fund to purchase the rights to develop units. Um, that's becoming a, a super area for me, um, and, and has been for a long time, but, um, you know, mainly through my connections on, on Twitter. Um, and you know, what I do is I basically do like a deep dive into the franchise disclosure document for the, for my clients. I'll identify, you know, any key terms, red flags, negotiating points, and break down a 250 page document into you know, something like six to eight page memo, you know, summarizing my key findings. And then, you know, we'll, we'll spend a, a, a lot of time with the client and, and some have various, you know, varying degrees of 
familiarity with franchising, but it's 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 usually the the first time franchise investor that that I'm I'm speaking to, and um, I'm able to you know give them a good deep education on on what it's like to be a franchisee, the the relationship that you know the and and the control the franchisor will have over the 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 concept and also your ability to develop and buy more locations. Um, and then I'll you know, proceed to assist the client with negotiating, you know, the, the deal with the franchisor. And most people don't realize a lot of startup and emerging brands are willing to negotiate with, with franchisees uh, to get the deal done. And that is usually done through an addendum. So, um, when I'm dealing with a startup and emerging brand on the franchisee side, you know, I'll push the envelope a little bit, but within reason, knowing what I can score and what I would advise my franchise or clients to agree to or not to agree to. I use, you know, my, my, that side of um, my practice in helping my franchisee clients. Uh, but most of those, you know, established brands are going to say, you know, take it or leave it. And, you know, there, there won't be too much negotiation there. Um, but then once the investor, you know, closes, you know, I generally stay in touch with them until the next deal. So, you know, it's not as consistent work. It's, it's more of like a, you know, two, three month engagement maybe. And then, you know, you're sort of hoping to get the next one. Um, so it's not as, it's a little bit, um, uh, it could be a one-off situation. Um, the, the third pillar that, uh, is becoming, um, uh, and I, I, I admit to you, I listened to, uh, you know, Eric's, uh, <laughs> Eric's podcast and he spoke a lot about, uh, uh, M&A work and, and, and I like to, to break down the franchise M&A transaction work into two categories. One being for deals that a non-franchise attorney may be handling for a client in the franchise space. I inject myself into the conversation by assisting the counsel and the client with you know, understanding the, the franchise piece of the transaction. Um, and I'll also do the negotiations with the franchisor on any negotiated terms because that buyer is going to need to sign a then current form of the franchise agreement and be bound by the terms the franchisor has uh, for, um, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And so it's it, it behooves any uh, transactional M and A attorney that doesn't have that franchise background to get a franchise attorney involved in that transaction to uh, help counsel the client on on those franchise specific issues. The other part of the M and A practice is uh, you know, handling the transaction from start to finish, uh, franchise and non franchise. Certainly, we do. We do both, but um, one of the reasons why I made the jump to, uh, or we made the jump from Wash Rains to to GM was, you know, GM has a really great M and A team um, based out of New York, and um, our deals at Wash Rains were anywhere from one million to let's say ten million, and I knew, you know, we would need some firepower if we were going to go after the the bigger deals, and that's exactly what happened. You know, in the first three months of me starting, you know, we we got a transaction in that was far, far above 10 million bucks. Um, that was a uh, 100 unit franchise or acquisition by a 
New York-based private equity fund. And we handled the transaction. Uh, great experience uh, with working with the, the, the GMMA attorneys. And, you know, I was able to spearhead the transaction and also, you know, assist with uh, the franchise uh, specific issues and also, uh, you know, bless the final documents as they, as they, as they went through. We worked with some good counsel on the other side, of course. Um, and um, those are the deals that we're hunting now. And, and frankly, you know, we've got the team to do it. Um, but uh, this this area is really hot, and you know I treat the the you know two hundred fifty thousand dollar buyers you know uh, with the same care and consideration as I would the fifty million dollar transactions. You know, uh, and, and Eric spoke to that on his podcast, and I, and I the sentiments that you know there are a very few deal deal lawyers out there that will give the same attention to the smaller deals as they would in, in, in the larger transactions. And I think that space is really uh, where um, uh, a lot of the action is. And, and, and I enjoy being a part of that action and, and, and handling those, you know, single unit deals, 10 unit deals, 50 unit deals, those sorts of things. Uh, as a trained litigator, uh, the fourth pillar of my practice uh, is uh, in dis- uh, resolution, I'll say, uh, also known as litigation. Um, and, uh, you know, most franchise agreements uh, put their disputes in arbitration. So, you know, we are um, actively litigating multiple cases. I, I do take franchisee cases uh, against brands that I don't represent. Um, and, uh, I also represent my clients when they find themselves in disputes with, uh, with franchisees and will take franchisors that I don't otherwise represent, but are represented by a non-litigation attorney and will assist, uh, that client with, uh, with the litigation needs. Um, and what's interesting about, about franchising is, and, and, you know, it's, it's sort of rare in a lot of fields to see sort of these hybrid attorneys. Um, and, and you find that a lot in the franchise space. Um, because, you know, I feel like the, the lawyers that are able to, um, draft the documents and, and also have in their mind how the, the, the disclosures and how the franchise agreement might read to a judge or might read in court or how that dispute over, um, uh, over a certain provision uh, might might play out um, really is a value to the franchise or clients because um, I can tell when I'm reading an FDD that is drafted by a purely transactional attorney. And I look mostly to the dispute resolution clauses uh, in particular and can tell like, how is that, how is this going to work um, in, in reality? And I've also litigated the finest nuances of of, of franchise agreement language, uh, which helps me um, draft a uh, better FDD, better document for my franchise or clients. Uh, the last pillar, don't need to go into too much detail, but I, I like doing trademarks. Um, and trademarking is one of the elements of being a franchise. And I, um, I, I, I picked it up early, did a lot of trademark work, uh, uh, 
early in the early days of wash rains and just kept it going. And we offer that as a, uh, a package, uh, part of the package uh, deal for um, startup brands and also certainly maintain trademarks and file trademarks all the time or established and emerging and established brands. Before we get into how these five pillars impact the content you put on Twitter, which by the way, you've got what, 4,000, 4,100 followers on Twitter. So you are slowly building quite the following, but you've mentioned, you've referred to Eric Pasifici. He was on the October 15th, 2022 episode of Legally Contentum. He is an ex-Kirkland associate for people who aren't familiar. And while Adam's 4,000 plus Twitter followers are wonderful and probably well more than most big law lawyers, Eric's Twitter following is up to 51,000 or so. And he is setting, I think, a new bar. And many people think a new bar for what is possible from a lawyer who goes on Twitter, gives, gives, gives knowledge, gives insights, retweets what people are saying, is very generous with his time and his platform. And created such a following, although he started anonymously, created such a following that he left Kirkland and Ellis to launch his own small business uh, M&A firm based on the deal flow that he got from Twitter, which that sentence doesn't seem like it should make sense. Who leaves Kirkland and Ellis to go out on their own based on what they've been able to do on Twitter? But he has created a platform for himself and I think is a leading example of the utmost highest level of what's possible when it comes to a lawyer on Twitter complying with ethical obligations, not defaming anyone, but yet providing information, insights, and building a community, building a following, and getting such incredible opportunities to do deals that he left KE to launch his own practice. So on that note about content, talk a little bit about how what your practice is and those five pillars, how that shapes what you say on Twitter, which is a public, you have a public timeline. Anybody can see it, whether they follow you or not. It's searchable on Google, searchable on Twitter itself. How does that shape your, how do those pillars shape what you say on Twitter? Yeah. So I'll start by saying that Eric is the gold standard of, of, of Twitter right now. I mean, he is um, not only um, uh, an excellent um, uh, uh, poster, but he's actually like a really good person. And, and so you can kind of get that sense through Twitter, but when you get to know him a little better, you know, he's very giving and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice to uh, be in his orbit, uh, on, on social media. Um, and, and frankly, you know, I call it the Pasifici effect. Um, you know, if you are in that orbit, it sort of can take your profile from, you know, sort of doing, uh, typical lawyer things to doing some pretty amazing things. So, uh, I, I'd have to say that a good chunk of my followers are directly attributed to my ability, my, my interactions with him and also my, uh, having worked with him in real, you know, in real life, um, on, on deals. And, and, you know, we have a good working relationship and it's directly from our interactions on Twitter. And it's, it's been a really, a bit, really great ride. Um, but uh, as far as the um, uh, pro-franchisor, pro-franchisee, and, and where you land, um, I've always said that it, I feel it is every franchise lawyer's duty to, um, you know, root out the bad actors, to identify the, you know, what I'll just say, the, the, the fraud or the publicly known fraud in our industry, 
Um, so I've got, you know, I'm not necessarily playing either side. Um, I see the industry as like a, a whole and, and so I'm able to, you know, see the, the arguments from both sides. Um, I, I, I don't necessarily think it benefits, for example, a franchisor if you are just pro-franchisor without really seeing the issues from the franchisee's perspective and from their side and having represented franchisees and franchisee associations in systems where the franchisor is not acting in a way that is, in my opinion, appropriate. Um, I'm able to counsel my franchisor clients to avoid those problems and to see it from the other side. And the same goes for franchisees that I represent. You know, if I, if I see an issue that they're, that they think is a problem, but I'm, you know, I can, I can tell them how the franchisor is going to react to them, uh, you know, filing litigation or, or taking some stand that may be contrary to their contractual rights. So, um, I think seeing things from like a 360 degree purview, like way high above the, the clouds on both sides, not only guides my practice, but it's able to guide how I interact with people on Twitter, what I post. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's worked. How much time are you spending on Twitter? Is this something where you are, where you're doing the equivalent of, I'm going to sit down an hour and I'm going to just be on Twitter and respond to people and post my content? Or are you swooping in and out as you get done one task for a client? You need to cleanse your brain for 10 minutes. How are you using Twitter? Because I think a lot of people look at that the way they look at blogging or article writing, where it is a high intensity activity for two, three, four, five hours, maybe all at once, maybe split up, but it's very intense. Yet Twitter is the kind of thing where you can flip through the timeline. You can respond with a quick three, four words and move on with your day. So how do you balance being a partner, doing the client work, managing people and the other marketing things you're doing, and then trying to build your presence on Twitter and be active on the service? Yeah. The short answer is I drink a lot of coffee. Uh, uh, I also am up pretty late, um, but um, I'm also very accessible to my clients and, um, uh, you know, interact with them on text and email, whatever platform they want to interact with me on. So I'm used to using my phone a lot. And most of my Twitter activity obviously is, is from my phone. Um, so, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm more in the boat of the interspersed between client work. I'm going on to Twitter and just checking to see what's, what's updating or, you know, any DMs that have come in for either clients or, or people that are looking to, you know, ask questions or work with me. Um, but, um, I'm on my phone a lot, I will say, uh, to, to my wife's chagrin. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I try to manage, um, everything the best I can and also, you know, be home for dinner and coach my kids in youth sports and all that stuff. Um, so, but I'm, I'm working, it's a work in progress, but I, I am pretty quick and I, I really feel like, um, responding to not only DMs, Twitter posts that mention you or getting involved in franchise related discussions quickly. Um, it, it's the same. I treat Twitter the same way, almost like a client, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, 
high needs client, if you will. Um, but it's also, you know, um, uh, reaching, you know, a lot more people. So it's great. The irony is if you had the CEO of Twitter as your client, you have a high needs client as well in the form of Elon Musk. So there's some irony there. As we start to wrap up, I want to ask you a couple more questions. One, I'm curious, how did you know Twitter was working? How did you know that there was starting to be a little bit of a payoff here beyond simply just people retweeting you or you acquiring followers? And then the final question is, how would you counsel in-house marketers at law firms and attorneys themselves contemplating either pushing their attorneys on Twitter or those attorneys getting on themselves? How would you guide them as to getting on and getting their feet wet? Um, I, I, over the years, it been, you know, being on social and, and being on Twitter has um, resulted in, you know, client here, client there, interactions, um, it, more for informational gathering. And then someone might reach, reach out to me directly through the website saying they saw a post of mine. Um, I did a lot of blogging as well, uh, but Twitter specific really wasn't a, um, a major uh, avenue uh, early on for, uh, you know, direct acquisition of clients um, until maybe a couple of years ago when the follower count started to increase from 2000 to 3000 now, you know, over 4000 and hopefully growing. Um, gotta, gotta keep up with it. Um, but you know, as it's kind of, you know, that validation has sort of, um, come in not only through, you know, my own profile and my posts, um, but also through others and, and kind of being part of this SMB slash franchise community of people that are just interested in getting into the industry. And, um, until that validation occurred, um, when that validation occurred is when I'm starting it started to pick up and it's it's pretty crazy right now uh with with people reaching out saying they saw a pit twitter post or that they've dm me and i say hey shoot me an email let's let's talk formally um and that's that's happening i mean i i just represented a a uh, small private equity firm that was private investment firm that was doing a, a a deal um and i i got them through through twitter and you know, still interact with the owner and the owner's mentioning me. And then all of a sudden everyone's kind of saying, Oh, who's this franchise attorney? Um, so it's, it's, it's good to get that validation from, you know, from your community. And, and that really, um, really has helped me not only grow my followers, but grow my direct client acquisition from Twitter. Um, as far as the, the in-house farm marketing team, um, I will say from my own experience, you know, the, 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 the head of the firm, you know, Jerry Greenspoon, I, I saw him at the Christmas uh, event and it's almost like he, he knows me because of my Twitter. He follows me. Um, and, and so joining a firm that really supports individual client or individual lawyer um, um, growth and, 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 and marketing and, and creating kind of a personal brand was important to me. And, and and I feel like where I landed after having my own firm and doing really whatever I wanted for eight nine years, um, going into a firm, I could have gone two ways, and and it really has been, um, I think, an extra layer of marketing for me. Um, on top of the Twitter, you know, my 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 internal team is able to, you know, blast out 
when I get mentioned and, and, and really we've created our own website for our practice groups. It's been, it's been a great, great experience, but for other, other firms, you know, I'd just say to firm marketers, you know, let, let the attorneys be, you know, be, be them, you know, be, be genuine. Um, some of the best handles out there, uh, in the big firm space, like, uh, Bradford Harden and Michelle Strohero, they're big, big, big mega firms and they are out there posting, you know, their, you know, their recipes, uh, you know, what they're, what they're baking that day, you know, and it's, and it's through those interactions, those personal interactions that people kind of get to know who you are as a person. You know, you establish that trust that you are a, you know, a, a good attorney, know what you're talking about. And, and from there, it either leads to, you know, client interactions uh, and, and real uh, business generation. And, and it's like, why not? You know, uh, why not let, 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 let lawyers be, be themselves, um, you know, certainly within some moderation of making sure they understand they shouldn't be posting, you know, conspiracy theories and whatnot. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, I think letting lawyers kind of uh, pull back the curtain a little bit and, and show who they are and, 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 um, also th that they are the, an authority in their particular area of law is really, um, it's worked for me. And then I think it's, it's a, it's a good starting point if the firms don't have that sort of policy. And that, I assume that's your advice for the lawyers themselves is to not be so buttoned up, don't hide behind the curtains, to come out, be authentic, be yourself. You don't have to violate ethics rules. You don't have to give out confidential information, but still be the kind of attorney who is generous with their knowledge, with their wisdom, and get out there and become known. Because when people get to know you, again, as we said earlier, with the professional content, but also the personal and lifestyle content, you build a relationship. And clients and referral sources, those are relationships. And sometimes they start with your kids' little league or dance classes. And sometimes it starts on Twitter or LinkedIn through messages. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, in my experience at Wash Rains, my partner, um, his, he'd go to the BNIs, you know, he'd go to the networking groups and his clients were hyper-local, right? Like almost like, you know, you could do a little, you know, and uh, circle around our office and those were, that's where he was getting clients. He wasn't anywhere near social or on Twitter. And for me, I'm able to reach people all over the globe and my clients are, um, all over the country, um, international. Um, and, and, and I'd like to attribute a lot of that to where people are, you know, where, where they are and, 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 you know, being on Twitter, being in our little community of, 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 uh, deal lawyers and SMB owners and uh, SMB searchers and uh, just entrepreneurs looking to, you know, purchase small businesses and roll them up into, you know, bigger uh, organizations, you know, all those, all those people are everywhere. And, and it's just great to be able to have that platform uh, through Twitter to be able to reach them and, and then to work with them on, on their deals. Adam, you are a shining example of a lawyer, a partner at a corporate law firm, an AMLAW 200 law firm, who still, you went out on social media, you're using Twitter to build your practice, you're able to balance the professional content with the lifestyle content, you're able to balance 
the work priorities and the client work with being on Twitter. So I think you are a great example and a great model for attorneys who want to get out there, who want to use social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or LinkedIn, but to be able to use, use social media in a professional manner, but in a way that speaks to would-be clients and would-be referral sources. Great job with what you're doing on Twitter. Congrats what you've done so far. Good luck with the future. Can you tell people how to find you either through Twitter or any other social media channels or any other contact methods? Yep. Uh, so my Twitter handle is at Adam G Wash. That's W-A-S-C-H. Then there's an E-S-Q at the end. Adam G Wash-esque. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Certainly uh, reach out via DM and uh, give you my life stories or my signature block and an email so you can have all my work contact info. But uh, that's how to find me. I'm, I'm out there and, and certainly uh, willing to uh, respond quickly to uh, any, uh, any inquiries. And we'll put your handles in the show notes so no one has to worry about getting the spelling or the exact location of ESQ correct. Adam, thanks again for informing my audience about how to get on Twitter as lawyers. And perhaps you might see a migration to franchise law based on your explanation of the five pillars and all of the cool things that you do as a franchise lawyer. Thanks again for your time and giving your knowledge and your wisdom to my audience. Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate, appreciate it. And thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com, hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.